So, when I was at school, I was an incredibly fast runner. I mean, I don't look like it now, but I was so fast. It was amazing. I didn't actually, I played rugby for a couple of months. So I never actually learned the rules. I did it entirely Forrest Gump style. Someone would hand me the ball and I'd just sprint down the outside. I was really, really fast. Probably one of the fastest in scores at the 100 meters as well. And so when my PE teacher came up to me and said, look, we're, we're doing some uh, inter-school races. Uh, I want you to come and race uh, there. I was like, I'm in there. I know, I know this. I've got this. I'm one of the fastest. I can do this. It's going to be amazing. So we turned up. It was Goslin Sports Center up in uh, Welling, Welling Garden City. And oh, man, I was so excited about this. I lined up you know, and saw the, my competitors. I thought, oh, they don't look like much. This is going to be easy. And uh, you know, got down. The firing gun went, and I zoomed out. Oh, it was beautiful. I'm way ahead of everyone else. And I was looking behind, I was like, this is easy. Usain Bolt, eat your heart out. It was way before Usain Bolt. But, um, but it was amazing. And I just carried on sprinting, and I left everyone, everyone in the dust. And as I passed that 100-meter line, I slowed down, ready to celebrate. It was the most amazing crowd cheering. I mean, in my memory, I imagine thousands of crowds there. I don't know if that's true. Um, but oh, it was so amazing. And I started to slow down, and then the guys carried on running. And I was, oh, what's going on? It was at that moment I realized it was actually the 400 meters. Uh -oh. That was incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> you see, what happened is when my teacher asked me to run, I knew what he meant. I'm a 100-meter runner. I sprint. I sprint 100 meters. So when he said run, everything else he said after that just completely blanked. I didn't hear anything he said. Yeah, yeah, got it, run, yeah. 100 meters, 400 meters, well, yeah, 100 meters, got you, Four, got it, got it. You need to train, you need to, you need to pace yourself. Yeah, yeah, I know what to do, I'm a runner. I mean, come on, you're teaching me to do the basic things. You get the point. And he said, you were saying, run, run. I know what run means, I know what it means. I had this picture in my head as to what that looked like. And then I just went and did that. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in an argument, of course you have, where, you've, uh, <laughs> where you just continue to argue amongst one another because you're just not listening to the other person. You know in your mind what you need to say, and the other person is just saying something else, so you don't even know what. You see, this happened a lot to those around Jesus. When he would say one thing, those who are listening, especially the religious people, they would hear something completely different. When Jesus talked about God and what he was calling them, they obviously knew what it meant because they were the religious ones. They know this. Yeah, we've got God. We know religion. You don't need to tell us anything more about that. So they knew God was coming to rescue them. And they knew God from this harsh world. And they knew who he was going to rescue. Because they had a picture of what God looks like and what God is looking for in a person. As experts of God, they had categorized and labeled everyone according to that picture. We do it today. We label everyone according to the, what the world sees as important. Fat, thin, attractive, unattractive, clever, Joey Essex. Good, bad. We all do it. Everyone fits in a category. Everyone fits in a column. Tinder says that. Swipe right, they're good. Swipe left, never want to speak to them again. Simple. Thanks. But Jesus didn't seem to follow their categories. When he seemed to be celebrating with sinners all of the time, they just didn't understand. 
Jesus, don't you realize that the world is in pieces? It's fallen apart. Everything around us is in turmoil. Why are you celebrating? And not only that, I mean, you know, you're religious, you know this. Don't, we know, don't you know we're supposed to be keeping ourselves free and clean from the uninfected sinners, from those guys, the bad ones, the one God doesn't like? It made absolutely no sense to them. So in their frustration, they concluded, well, the only way this makes sense is if Jesus is soft on sin. But Jesus, as much as he taught and as much as he tried to communicate and break their image, their picture of what God was looking for, they couldn't hear what he was saying. You're not listening, Jesus would say. I'm trying to say something completely different, something you don't have categories for at this moment. You're trying to measure the temperature with a ruler stick. It just will never work. Let me tell you how I categorize, how I measure people. Until you understand that, you won't understand me, and you certainly won't be able to receive what I'm bringing because you won't have the space for it. You, don't, you, you have to destroy your picture. You have to destroy your categories. And seizing the opportunity, he tells three stories which we find in Luke 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the big finale, the lost sons. The younger son who says to his dad, I want my inheritance now. And after he spends it all and he returns home, ready to be rejected, but instead embraced by the father. And then the older brother who sits outside the welcome home party in disgust. Many of you know the stories. In fact, Kev spoke two weeks ago on the prodigal son or the lost sons. Really worth listening to that on the podcast. So this is officially a Hollywood style, a prequel in build up to this. I know this kind of looks like I'm cashing in what Kev has done, and that partly is true, actually. But, um, but actually, what I'm hoping to do is take what he's done and what legwork has done and actually take us much deeper. Think less Star Wars and more Batman Begins. Now, from verse 1 on Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. That's a great word. We should use that more. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. They're blinded by their own picture of God, their own understanding of what he's looking for. Why was he celebrating? Why was he hanging with them? Verse 3. And then Jesus told them this parable, the first one. Suppose, just suppose that one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Everyone, whether they liked him or not at this moment, would have been agreeing with this story. But he's trying to tell them something new, something different. He's saying, look, guys, I have a different view on sin than you do. Look at the lost sheep. What's it doing? It's not out for a stroll. It didn't get lost on a summer's walk. It left. It said, I don't really need a shepherd. I can get food and water by myself, thanks. 
the prodigal son, which we see later on or in the text, I, I want my wealth. He could have asked for his dad for a car or anything that he needed or anything he wanted, but instead he wanted the money itself so he could choose how to spend it. He says, I want it, but I don't want you. The old definition of sin says that sin is breaking the rules. But Jesus says, no, the essence of sin is so much deeper than that. It's running and escaping from God. It's saying, I can do this without him, thank you. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. In fact, actually, that, uh, verse 7, which we read, righteous persons who don't need to repent. Tom Wright says this, try saying the sentence with a smile and a question mark. Righteous persons who uh, don't need to repent? When you hear it that way, you realize that there is no such thing as someone who is righteous without God. Cast the first stone. Everyone has sinned. Isaiah 53 says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. Jesus says the definition of sin is wanting to get away from God. Breaking the rules is one way to do that and get away from God, but keeping them is actually another way. Some say, I don't like anyone telling me what to do, so I'm going to rebel. I'm going to break the rules. It's really funny. I've got a friend, and I go in the house sometimes, and on her wall is this little quote, and it says this, life is short. Break the rules. Forgive quickly. Kiss slowly. Laugh truly. Sorry, love truly. Laugh uncontrollably. And never regret the things that made you laugh. Quite inspiring, really, and slightly catchy. But then she wonders when her kids are misbehaving and not quite doing what she's saying. And I'm like, can we just look at this thing on your wall? It says, break the rules. <laughs> what do you think's going to happen? Some rebel outright, but others rebel in a different way. They don't articulate how they're feeling. They don't argue. They don't do confrontation. They're passive-aggressive. They just say to themselves, right, I'll show you. Yep, I'll do what you say, but it's only so I can show you that I don't need your help. I don't need to talk to you. I can do this, thanks. You know, it's interesting. Of all the stories that Jesus could have possibly told and and shared with us to show us the essence of sin. He didn't come up with a murderer, a drug dealer, or a thief. He came up with a son who said, Father, give me my life and just leave me the heck alone. There's nothing illegal about this. The money was his and he could have used it any time, but it was like in a relational dagger. Look, Dad, when you die, I'm going to get the inheritance, but I mean, let's face it, you look like you're going to live forever. And I'm going to be way too old to enjoy this when you go. It's like Kev said the other week, the younger son was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. So I don't have to ask for permission how to spend this. I want to be in control. I want to be my own man. Thank you. But the older brother is no different. He argues with the father in public an incredibly shameful act. He says, how dare you spend my money on him, that younger son who wasted it all. He too wished the father was dead so he could control how the money was spent. Let me widen this even further. 
What about the one who says, hey, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm generous with what I have. I'm kind to other people. I live by Christian values. I mean, I don't pray or anything, and I don't need God to help me or guide me through things. But I mean, how does that make me bad? See, what you've done is you've taken the very things of God, and you're just living without reference to him. What are you doing? You're living as if he's dead. It's exactly the same. Jesus says it's not so much the life that you've lived. It's not whether you're good or bad. It's whether you're disconnected from the father. The younger brother is disconnected because he ran away and wasted everything. But the older brother, even though he's still around, even though he's still here, is disconnected. They both wanted control. They both would have preferred if he was dead. The world thinks that good people are saved and bad people are not. But sin isn't about anything you do. It's about why you do anything. Whether good or bad, it's saying to God, I don't need you. I want control of my life apart from you. Here's the irony. When the younger son left, it says he squandered his wealth in wild living. Wild. That word means out of control. Do you know why he's out of control? Because whenever you try to get control over your life by disconnecting from God, you give your control to other things instead. Jesus makes it clear, there's a home here for you any day you want it. You are welcome here. There is a home with the Father. But if you decide to keep control, if you go out into the world, you will keep running around asking anything and everything. Do you love me? Do you love me? You talk to your boss, you know, is that, was that good work? Are you proud of me? You talk to your spouse, do you love me? Am I worth loving? You talk to your children, am I a great parent? You give your control. You give power to the voices in the world. It's the world that then defines us. The world that gives us worth. But the world's love is full of ifs. Yeah, I love you if you still are attractive. Yeah, I love you if, if you're still intelligent. Yeah, of course I love you if you've still got the money, if you've still got those connections, if you're still funny, if you're still productive. Jesus knows this. And so he adds another dimension to the story to talk about our worth. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus has a much deeper view of sin, but he has a much higher view of our worth. The most common way to see these coins is a woman's dowry. This is the only money that she brings into her marriage that she keeps. It's a sign of her worth apart from anything else. The point was, these were 10 valuable coins that represented something very important to this woman. See, this goes way deeper than lost money. Jesus is saying we have tremendous value. In the same way, my uh, wedding ring has sentimental and emotional value, not just monetary value. It's a symbol of mine and Tara's love and commitment to one another. So when I lost it, 
a few years ago at Centre Parks, <laughs> going up and down the rapids over and over again, I was pretty devastated. But can you imagine how I felt the next day when it turned up in Lost and Property and they filtered out from the filter with someone else's wedding ring, bizarrely. <laughs> <laughs> I was incredibly happy. This is the ring that Tara gave me on the day that we wed. Yeah, I could buy a new one, but this has sentimental value. In the same way, we have three children. If I took them all out to the park and one of them decided they ran off and I wouldn't say, oh, I've still got two. Let me just give Tara a call. <laughs> hey, honey, um, some bad news. I've uh, lost one of the children. But hey, it's okay, because I've still got the other two. I'll bring them home. It's all good. <laughs> no. God says every single one of us is like the lost coin. We are stamped with the image of the king, which says to anyone who beholds us, we have greater worth than the materials that we are made with. We have greater worth than the materials that we are made with. The world wants you to be quiet about God and accept that you're here by an evolutionary lottery. But the problem is, no matter how we got here, if God didn't create us, then you have to accept that you are just a blob of matter here by complete chance and soon to be gone, never to be thought of ever again. Your origin, your destiny, and everything in between is utterly insignificant. So there is absolutely no rational reason for saying that you are more important than a rock, a tree, the chair that you're sitting on. And yet, we have a deep inner desire and indeed the audacity to live as if we are valuable. The secular world on this is incredibly conflicted. Children sit in a science class where they're taught they are a complex mass of cells evolved from celestial soup. Then they wander across the, class, the school into another class where a teacher attempts to impart in them this idea of self-esteem because they're valuable, because they're significant in this world. And you know, that child is probably sitting there desperately wanting to hear this. But they can't. How could they? Any logical person. You couldn't make sense of it because they don't have a narrative for it. But we do. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Verse 28, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and rule over it, govern it. Verse 31, then God looked over all that he had made and said that it was very good. Psalm 139, for you created the inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You may not have been planned. Perhaps you weren't longed for or even wanted. Perhaps you grew up filling another seat at the family table, and that's as far as family goes to you. But God says, you are not a mistake. I don't make mistakes. You were created to love and be loved. You were conceived in love, born in love, loved in life, and will be loved forevermore when you die and rise again through Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you say, 
Oh, that's probably true, but you know, I've messed up quite a lot since then. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty dirty now. I mean, why would God ever want me? Well, perhaps you're like my daughter, Aria. We uh, learned this from the GLS to have this conversation with her. We said, Aria, who made you? And she says, God did. And we said, Aria, how did God make you? She says, he made me good. But Bella made me naughty. Your value doesn't come from what you do or what you did or what happened to you or anything you've come across. It comes from who you are. God's creation, God's child, redeemed for the highest price through Jesus on the cross. So no wonder he is the shepherd or the woman who comes looking for us. No wonder he's the father who longs for his children to come home and return to him. And that's the story that Jesus moves on to now. Jesus has a much deeper view of sin. It's the sheep running from the Father. He has a much higher view of our worth. It's the coin of inestimable, inestimable value. And now he sits, tells the third story to complete the trilogy. The son goes off, spends his wealth, has nothing left. And then at that time, there's a famine so he hires himself out. Verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of the hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now the Pharisees, the religious guys, sitting around hearing this story would have known all too well what would have happened next. Oh boy, he is going to get it now. Look at the life that he's lived. He is in big trouble. You see, each of... The stories that Jesus says, um, uh, sorry. So in each of the stories, Jesus doesn't just say that you're just going to be accepted. He always finishes, there will be rejoicing over one sinner who repents. They must repent. The son is about to repent. Now to the Pharisees, the repentance is nothing short of making full amends and returning to a complete life of obedience. And should he be accepted, He'll spend the rest of his years as a servant. And that's fair. But for Jesus, and this is what he's been trying to say the whole time about sin, about our worth, he says repentance is different from what you think it is. Paul may have had this prodigal son's story in mind when he wrote in 2 Timothy this. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance. It's a gift of God that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. See, repentance is coming to your senses. To experience God begins with coming to our senses. The son doesn't say, oh, wow, man, I shouldn't have wasted all that money on prostitutes. Oh, that was a bad decision. I knew it was wrong, but, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry now. That's not coming to your senses. 
Coming to your senses means that like you feel like you're opening your eyes for the first time, like you become insane. It's looking at the world entirely differently. The language of repentance is this, what have I done? How could I have been so blind? How could I have been so ungrateful? How could I have missed the obvious? That's repentance. The younger son says, I am starving. After all that I've spent, all that I've done, at the end of the day, I'm just hungry. And yet there's always been bread at home. How in the world did I miss that? I've done all this when everything I've ever needed was at home. Come into your senses. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for this or for that wrongdoing. It's coming to your senses is to see that I've been running from the Father and trying to make other things home. I need to go home. Repentance is coming home. It's coming home. It's at this point that the audience would have been overlaying their pictures. Yes, yes, Ron, I know what that means. Yes, yes, repentance, I know what that means. The son came to his senses. He's been foolish. He realizes that he's run away. The son is missing home. But he wonders. He has no idea if home is missing him. The sinners and the tax collectors listening would have known the internal monologue, the soliloquy, I like that word, all too well. I'm far from God. I don't want to be far from God. Why am I so far? But I don't really know if God misses me. I don't know if there's a place at home for me anymore. I don't know if I'll ever measure up to what God wants. I mean, yeah, I meet people who are close to God and they seem like they've got something good and I'm kind of missing that. But I don't know if that is missing me. If you ask the Pharisees, most would have said, of course God doesn't miss you. He's probably disgusted by you. And that boy is in trouble. But you know what? The son takes the chance what happens next blew the minds and the categories of every single person listening because they didn't see things the way that Jesus saw them. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with disgust, with anger, with hatred, with embarrassment of all the shame that he has heaped on the family. The final word altogether depends on how you see God. But then Jesus says it. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Not just nice feelings, filled with compassion. He was overwhelmed. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. You have to see that there is no other God like this. None of the other religions, none of the other gods are like this. They say, here are the walls. I'll wait for you at home and see how you do. No, this shepherd comes looking for the sheep and carries it home. This woman sweeps the whole house to find the one coin. This father sees his son a long way off and comes running out of the house to throw his arms around the returning son. And that's what destroys their pictures. It leaves everyone in complete 
silence. Repentance was not what they expected. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. But you notice the son doesn't start his speech as the father's running. No, don't stop, stop, don't, don't worry. Let me, let me just quietly apologize. It's at the point of being hugged and kissed that he has the courage to ask. You see, the love of God was not the result of repentance. The repentance was a result of the love of God. The only way to understand what Jesus is trying to say is we have to see all these three parables together. Are we sinners disconnected from the Father because of foolishness like the sheep or carelessness like the lost coin or through rebellion like the younger son or passive aggression and frustration from the older son? Jesus says all of them, every single one of it is sin. Every single one of them is sinners. There is no one righteous Not even one, there is no one who seeks God. The how is irrelevant though. You're still trying to measure temperature of a ruler. The point is, they were lost. You are lost. And at that, Jesus gives his categories. It's not whether it's bad or good and now good or clean, unclean and now clean. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Those are my categories. Could the band come up, please? He was disconnected, estranged, emotionally distant, but now he's home. And that means we can throw a party for the one sinner who came to his senses. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the good, the clean, the well-behaved. No. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Would you guys mind standing? No, hold it. One Are you lost? Are you lost? Does God feel far away? Have you been feeling a bit disconnected? Maybe recently, maybe for a long time. Jesus is not saying do this and do that and I see how I feel about welcoming you home. He is searching for you. He's been searching for you the whole time and he has found you and he is carrying you home. You are precious to him. Come to your senses. Come to him and let him embrace you. Whether you've been foolish, careless, disobedient or emotionally closed is irrelevant. You are lost and you are now found. So come home. Come home. Please just come home.